Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm one of your co-hosts today. I'm Terrence Toe from Strategic Corporation. And next to me, I have Nadia Hughes. Good morning, Nadia. Good morning, Terence, and I'm from Unfair Advantage Accounting, and I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> and fairly recently rebranded to Unfair Advantage Accounting. Well done. This morning, we have a great guest, second time on, and he's the founder and I think chief, is it chief visionary officer of VNI? Visionary officer, yes. Yeah, of VNI, and here today to talk about a great book that he's written recently called Who's in Your Room? Thanks to both of you for inviting me back. It's, I, it's good to know I passed the audition. <laughs> <laughs> it was you pretty hard us. not to invite you back after the, the way the last episode went, actually. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, it was happy fun to be back. and we got and, really good feedback. And uh, now I meet people and they say, oh, you were funny with this one, this other one. And I go, yeah, how did you get him on the podcast? Oh, it was very hard. I don't know. How did you get him? <laughs> well, I think the normal thing you ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. What a thought. Yeah. <laughs> what a thought. Okay. Ivan, I just have a first question. Why did you write this book? made you think of this book because there are two co-authors but yeah. i want to know what your personal motive was so uh, the the concept of the book wasn't mine originally it was Stuart emery my co-author and he shared at an event i went to i'm a member of an organization called the transformational leadership council and he shared the concept of the room and in a couple of minutes i'd love to share the general construct of the of the concept but he shared this and i thought oh my goodness this is this applies to networks this applies to the kinds of people that you surround yourself with in networks. And of course, I've been running BNI for 34 years, and it's, you know, it's the world's largest face-to-face networking organization, and I've experienced the kinds of things he was talking about. And I was so impressed with the concept. I went up to him and I said, you know, you, you got to write a book on this. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And he, he, he didn't do it. And I kept bothering him. And finally, he said, oh, heck, you want to do the book with me? And by the way, he's, he's from Australia, Stuart. He's Australian. And finally, he said, oh, heck, I'll actually, he's Australian. He didn't say heck. Uh, he said, uh, you know, oh, I'll, yes, I'll. I'll, I'll right, I together. will do it. <laughs> yes. Stop bothering me. We'll do it. And so he and I, with Rick Sapio, produced this book. I opened the, this book and started to read it. And I was thinking to myself, it's one of the most important exercises I should be doing and advising other people doing whenever they are on crossroad or whenever they have difficulties with mm-hmm. reconciling something in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me really hard. The, it's of recent, and this book was a confirmation of my suspicion that I was doing something wrong. That's why I was running out of path. Yeah. And the biggest revelation happened to me in the last month was being somewhere which looks like very successful and thriving enterprise, yet you feel not home. You don't feel comfortable and you feel feeling completely drained and exhausted, yet yeah. you not find it satisfying any success coming your way. And this discovery really hit me hard when I just read these words that I was acting outside of my values. 
That's critical. Absolutely critical. Let me give you the, the construct uh, for, for your listeners, for your viewers, the construct of uh, the room. And then let me tackle values because that really comes second. Imagine that you live your life in one room. For those of you who have not read the book, imagine you live your life in one room. And that one room has only one door. And that one door is an enter only door so that when people come into your room or into your life, they're there forever. You can never get them out. Now, luckily, it's a metaphor. But, and I would argue it's probably more than a metaphor, but luckily, let's just say it's a metaphor. If it were true, Nadia, Terrence, if it were true, would you be more selective about the people that you let into your life? Of course. It's yeah. a confined space and you don't want uh, anybody there. You want Well, you want the people that, that, that you enjoy having around you. And, and everybody says that. So here's the thing. I think it's more than a metaphor because I'd like the two of you, and, and if you're watching this or listening to this, I want you in the audience to do the same thing. I want you to think of somebody who you've gotten out of your life because I've had people say to me, ah, I can get them out of my room. I can get them out. I want the two of you to think of someone you've gotten out of your life who was toxic, difficult, annoying. You just did not like being around them and you got them out of your life. Now, I'm not going to make you share the names, but do you have somebody in your mind? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Of course. Yeah, everybody does. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you're listening to this, I want you to think of someone. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. If they're still in your head, they're still in your room. Because the experiences that you had with that individual will stay with you for the rest of your life. One of the people that we interviewed was Dr. Daniel Amen, who is well known as a neuroscientist and and psychiatrist. And, And he said that the people that you build relationships with, their fingerprints are all over your brain. You can never delete those memories. And and so it's it's so important to bring people into your life that add value to your life and don't take away value from your life. And so you've got to be more selective. But what do you select based on? And Nadia, that was your point. Uh, It's got to be values. And when I talk to people about values, it's like deer in the headlights. You know, I say, well, tell me your top seven values. And people are like, honesty. Okay, great. That's one. Give me six more. And they're flustered. They don't know what to say. You can't determine who you allow into your life unless you get clear about your personal values. And when you understand your personal values, then you know what kind of people to bring in your life. Here's a technique that I talk about in the book that you can start the process with. They're called deal breakers. Hmm. So I'll give you one of my deal breakers and then maybe you guys will share a deal breaker. A deal breaker is something where this is not the kind of person you want around you. And I actually came up with this one. You know, toxic, angry people, I had that as a deal breaker for a long time. But I came up with a whole new one when I wrote this book that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Drama. People (laughs) that are dripping in drama. That their whole life, we all have a little drama, I have a little drama, but you know what I'm talking about. People that every day is drama. It's one dramatic event after another. And I realized I just didn't like people like that around me. And that became one of my deal breakers. What are some deal breakers for you two? 
No, before I do it, I want to ask you one interesting thing. There is a bit of crossroad with other um, school of thought. And if you please allow me to, to do this to you, when we don't like something in other people, it means it's something we have deeply entrenched inside ourselves and we don't like this trait about ourselves. So when I'm talking about my deal breakers, I have to be very careful why they are my deal breakers. Is this part of me also possessing this type of deal breakers? Myself. And this well, is where I yeah. have to be very careful when I'm picking my deal breakers because they are ultimately the one I have to make sure that I absolutely have none of it inside me. Right. Well, listen, that's definitely true sometimes. But I think people who are self-aware, if you are reasonably self-aware, you have a pretty good sense of your strengths and weaknesses. And if you recognize that a deal breaker for someone else, you actually have some of those. You're self-aware enough to, to catch that. I consider myself reasonably self-aware. I know what most of my strengths and weaknesses are. And in that what case- What are your weaknesses? What are my weaknesses? Gee, I don't know if I want to share that. On, well, on, you're uh, out there. You just <laughs> Ivan Meisner and you become a little bit of this monolith. You just want to break it back to basic that you're still a human being. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a human being. So I think one of my weaknesses is that I'm so structured that getting off, off plan is frustrating for me. I plan my spontaneity. <laughs> I tend to be very organized. I mean, look, at this is my desk. This is the way it looks all the time. I'm organized, systematic, and that's both a strength and a weakness. It brings structure to my life. But, it, you know, when chaos is thrown in, I may have a little... <laughs> little difficult time dealing with chaos. Do you have a paper bag and you breathe in it? I don't, but I meditate. Okay. So I, I just... Meditate. I meditate. And I every want to, day... What's that? I just wanted to see this image of you having panic attack over the <laughs> things. No, nah, I don't usually have a panic attack, but I do meditate and I do every day. It's one of my uh, daily rituals. I get up, I exercise every morning, and then I have a steam shower. Every house I've owned for the last uh, 30 years, I've had a steam shower in it. And I spend 20 or 30 minutes in the steam shower just kind of uh, relaxing, meditating, thinking. Sometimes I just clear my mind. Sometimes I'm thinking about an issue. I find that sometimes I just come up with some concept, some idea. I've been, I've been you know, gnawing on an issue and just going in there and relaxing, boom, an answer will come to me. So that, those are some of the kinds of things that I do. But uh, yeah, I, I tend to be a little too structured. Ideas in the shower can be... <laughs> shower brain, you called it. <laughs> it's, it's just a great place to get ideas. I mean, uh, but I get ideas and apparently we discovered on a previous episode recently that, you know, I mean, I surf and I mountain bike a bit and, you know, they're forms of meditation because you're in absolute focused state. You can't be thinking about all sorts of things. So, and, and I find I get a lot of great ideas when I'm out there. <laughs> one of our guests was meditating over boiling eggs. That's true. The moment you fall into state of being mesmerized, you are meditating. So I they think say, we need to go back to uh, our value, Ivan's our question. deal breakers. Ivan's question, deal breakers. So you, yeah, you almost got out of it. I, I saw that. Yeah, no, I, I had no intention of letting either of us get out of it. <laughs> I, I find those deal breakers very confronting. Good. Mine is probably what you said, I think, initially, Ivan. Mine's really toxicity. Mine's really, you know, I kind of think in a way that's connected to drama 
as well, you know, in, mm. in, in, a, in a way at, at some sort of level, but it's definitely just, yeah, it's that level of toxicity that that's an absolute deal breaker and you can see it, hear it, feel it every sense. But here's the problem with toxicity or, or drama. And, and I was guilty of this. I would meet people and I knew they weren't real positive or I knew they had drama and I still did business with them. I still did business with them because they were good at what they did. So I figured, ah, I could deal with that. Yeah, I could deal with all the drama. And I discovered uh, as, as I, you know, I earned this gray hair, as I got more gray hair, <laughs> I discovered that, you know what? Life's too short. I don't, I don't want to deal with that craziness and that drama. So we're going to get to Nadia in two seconds, but this is a really interesting point. I, I think I brought this in with hiring in my businesses as well. And I speak with my clients about this and, and how they're hiring. And there, there are two main aspects that I hire on. There's attitude and aptitude. Yep. But to me, attitude is such a big thing. And to me, attitude trumps aptitude every single time because yeah, I'm inclined to agree with someone who's got the right attitude to something they can learn to do almost anything, you know? Yep. So. Yeah. You can't teach attitude. Now listen, aptitude in some businesses. I mean, you know, if you're a brain surgeon, probably I don't, I don't care some. what your attitude is. Your <laughs> aptitude might trump it. But for most mere mortals like, uh, like me and others, it's about attitude. I can't train someone to have a good attitude and I don't have time to send them back to mom to get retrained. So aptitude, if somebody's willing to learn, I can teach someone how to do something, but I can't teach them attitude. I agree with absolutely. you. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Nadia. Okay. <laughs> what I find awful is in my life when I'm confronted with dishonesty. Yeah. When people are lie to me and I can see through lies and I just, look at them and I'm just, why are you bothering? Because I read body language. It's probably the most, it's a time when I lose all respect for the human being, when people mm. lie to me bluntly, when the entire body language says otherwise. Says otherwise. I, another thing I do not like is manipulation, being manipulated into anything. Because again, yeah. the, I see the intention of the human being because my main thing, what is behind, why are you asking me to do this? I don't, focus on form as much. I'm more focus on intention behind it. And another one, I, you have to spell it out for me because I found this word fascinating. I never met it before, but met it in your book because I haven't heard it. One-upmanship. Oh, you haven't heard that? No, it's oh, the first time I heard this word. <laughs> what does it mean? It's probably more of a concept than a word, isn't it? <laughs> what does it mean? One-upmanship. That means you do something, I'm going to do something better than you. And then you do something, well, I'm going to do it better than you. It, you're trying to get one up on someone else. I had this gut feeling that it would, must, might be some this unhealthy competition. Yeah, it's exactly it. Unhealthy competition. That's a great way of putting it. And here's I, another, I absolutely hate it about people because all I'm competing with is myself. Yes, I agree completely. You need to compete with yourself. Let me give you one other great example uh, of a deal breaker because deal breakers and values you can have them in relationships that you have with someone. My wife and I, I think we said this off air, uh, married 30 years this month. And one of the deal breakers that we have together as a couple is that we only spend time with other couples. When we go out with another couple, we only build relationships with other couples who love 
and respect each other. They have to love and respect each other. And when we started thinking about this, we realized that we had some friends who did not treat each other with respect or did not treat each other with love. And we're like, you know, why are we friends with these people? Now, look, you know, I've been married long enough that maybe I haven't always been as respectful or as loving as I could be, or maybe my wife hasn't. I'm not talking about the occasional thing. I'm talking about the, the normal relationship between that couple. Well, we've decided that the couples that we want in our room have to love and respect each other. And if they don't, if they don't generally do that, then that's a deal breaker. We don't have relationships with those people. Coming from this one, I want to ask you, so what is most important to know exactly what you want to have or what you don't want to have? Where's the focus lies? Yes. Yes to what? Both. (laughs) Yes to both. You know, it's, it's the yin and the yang. You got, you have to, you have to understand both. I think I'll tell you what's easier for most people is to know what you don't want. It's easier to start there because it's, it's harder for people to figure out what they do want because there's just so many things to choose from. You know, what are my values? I got to pick through all these. I got to rank order them. That's harder. What's easier are the deal breakers. So we recommend you start with deal breakers and then work on your values. Now in the book, we have exercises that you can do. There's an exercise in the book that you can do. And then there, there are links where you can go online, all free. You can download some stuff to get better idea of what your values are. We do have a link to a friend of ours, Tony Alessandra. Uh, he has a, a, a system that uh, there's a small fee, but that's his process, not ours. And so you can get a real good sense of what your values are. So start with deal breakers, then go to values. I had a look at uh, your links uh, because I was curious to have a look and it just, they're very comprehensive. The exercise she is offering to do. Yeah. And I, I was thinking I put it on um, my mental note Your to do it. Yeah. yeah, let me give it a few examples for so people understand what I'm talking about. So some of my core values I've incorporated into my business, uh, giver's gain, this philosophy that if I, if I help you, you'll help me. That's, that's one of my principal core values personally. Uh, lifelong learning, education is extremely important to me. Positive attitude, this is one of my core values. Accountability, that's a core value for me. Uh, so these are some of the kinds of things that are, are important to me. I'd love to my... go a little bit deeper. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off there, but I'd love to go a little bit deeper into accountability. So accountability, I think it's very easy for people to hold other people accountable, but they, have, they don't hold their, themselves accountable. And I'm a real believer that uh, you, have to, you have to hold yourself accountable for your behavior. The, the older I get, the less I believe in words and the more I believe in behaviors. Mm. And behaviors are really what holds people accountable. How you behave is how you should be held accountable. Not what you say. It's easy to stand up and say anything. But it's how you behave that really matters. And I think we say this in the book. If someone were to follow you around with a video camera and videotape you all week, what would they observe The things that they would observe are the values that you are living. They may not be the aspirational values you have, but they're the values you are living. And you have to ask yourself, are these really the values that I want to live? I really like the filter questions. If it would be your value, let's say your value is a teamwork, how would you be acting? If it's really mattered to you, would you be doing certain things? 
So you actually introduce in this book really good what I call filtering process. When I, if I'm very confused and think it's a bit vague, I can actually go and check it against uh, the, those questions and benchmark whether I'm congruent to these values or not. And yeah. that's what I have been doing. It's quite a practical book in this sense, despite yeah. the fact that it's touching quite obscure concept for humankind. It is an obscure concept. And we actually had the book. The book was up to 45,000 words. It was three times longer than it is now. And we realized it was a lot of stuff, but it, you had to dig through a lot to get to the heart. And we took a whole year to cut it back from 45,000 words to 15,000 words. We, we made it much shorter, very actionable. Okay, here's the concept. Now go do these five things. Here's another concept. Now go do these five things. So that people can read the book in two hours and they can apply it. The hardest part is sitting down and figuring out your values. That's the hardest part. But you got to behave yourself and do your homework. you, you got to do your values. I have done a list of my values, so I'm all good. Uh, that's, <laughs> good, all right. That, that book actually prompted me to do this. And uh, I also understood that when I do values for my business, they have to be in line with my personal values as well. They do. They have to be resonant with your personal values. If they're dissonant with your personal values, then you're not going to enjoy your work. Exactly. And that's what I have found for myself. Another very interesting, can we move on in a book? Yeah, I sure. I loved the concept and Terence today in the morning shared with me the same. He had really enjoyed this engines and anchors in life. Yeah. Let's talk about these who are engines and who are anchors. And I will tell you when I actually put book aside and start laughing. <laughs> well, this comes right out of work I've done with BNI. And years ago, I wrote a piece about engines and anchors and how people in networks, I saw people in the room who they behaved like engines. They drove the chapter forward. They got people excited. They got people motivated. They made the group as a whole better. A great network, the sum of the whole is greater than the individual parts. That those individuals by themselves cannot achieve what the whole group does. And, and in almost every case, there were a handful of people in that group who were engines. And they were making the whole better than the individuals. And, and I recognized them as engines. And at the same time, I recognized that in some groups, there were anchors. <laughs> <laughs> These were people that were just holding everyone back and they were complaining and they, you know, had one problem after another and they didn't follow the system. And, and those people were uh, helping that, that particular network fail. <laughs> and the worst, and I think I mentioned it in the book, the worst is the engine with an anchor attached, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And they're driving you in the wrong way. You know, you're trying to go this way, but they're, they're, they're holding you back. That's the worst. So you got to look at people. Are they, and here's, here's the question you ask yourself. Is this person, is their behavior holding me back or holding my network back? Or are they making me a better version of myself? Are they improving who I am? If they're improving who you are, that's an engine. If they're holding you back, that's an anchor. When I tell you one thought, it's, well, all I want to say for, about it is I mean, but one sentence really make, made me laugh. 
no one thinks they are an anchor. Yeah. Making anybody recognize you actually anchoring us is very hard. So it's, I can't imagine confronting anybody about it, whether it's chapter or your business. You're actually an anchor. I think that's a self. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd say that to them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would go over too well. But you have to recognize it. You have to recognize that you're dealing with an anchor. And there are ways that you can communicate with them to address the issue. But I wouldn't call them an anchor. That's counterproductive. <laughs> but you, you know it in your Great. head. Agreed. <laughs> I've got a question. I started to realize the power of, and I think we spoke about this, we touched on this a little bit earlier. I started to realize the power of teaching and the power of kind of being able to compiling all of your own thoughts into something like a book or, a, you know, I've yeah. been building out a program recently, which is like a business accelerator program. And what I found is that just through that process, I had some really profound insights into myself, into, you know, like just developed a whole lot of self-awareness that right. would never have been there otherwise. So I'd love to know what your insights were, what you realized, you know, some of the big profound things that came to you through this process of writing this book. So first of all, that's, that's sort of a self-development uh, 401 that what you're describing there is it's kind of an advanced self-development yeah and and i started thinking about it for the book because of my experience in mentorship in bni we have a lot of mentorship programs where we mentor directors we mentor members and you know everybody kind of recognizes that it's good to have a mentor the flip side of that is somebody's got to be a, be the mentor you know people are often happy to be a mentee they want somebody who helps them but the flip side of that is why would you want to be a mentor? And the answer to that, I think, kind of goes with the question you have. You want to mentor. You want to, you said you were developing this material to, you know, and, and along the way, it almost improved the kinds of things that you were doing because you're going deep and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a real life example. And this is one of the things I was thinking about when I wrote this book. When my son, my son's 25, when he was eight years old, he was um, in elementary school and the principal asked me, she said, would, uh, Ivan, we'd love to have you um, coach the chess club because she knew I liked to play chess. And, uh, and I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll coach the chess club. But I'd never really been trained in chess. Uh, you know, I was in high school chess club for about five minutes. I never really read books. I just played and I played pretty well. Now I had to teach these kids how to play. And I thought, I got to describe this stuff. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I was basically had an unconscious competence. And so now I needed, I needed to be able to describe it. So what was funny was that I started reading books when I was coaching eight-year-olds how to play chess. And here's the amazing thing. I got better. I improved my game because I coached eight-year-olds. And I learned, you know, all these moves that I kind of intuitively knew, but I didn't know what the names were. I, I learned what a ladder is, what a pin is, what a skewer is. I, I learned all these terms and these uh, names, the openings. And all of that made me a better chess player. And I actually had somebody say to me once, I was playing them a game, and, <laughs> and he said, wow, have you been studying? Have you been practicing? Because you, your game has really improved. I was almost embarrassed to tell him, yeah, I'm coaching eight-year-olds. 
<laughs> Look at your moves. Actually, um, yeah, just to expand on that a little bit more, that I've found a great power in taking these, you know, what seem like very complex concepts and then simplifying them. Yeah. And as you say, then being able to explain something to an eight-year-old in such simple terms that they really understand they get it, it, it there's a great power in actually being able to break that down. You're stealing this uh, from my website because our motto in our business, if you can't explain it to eight-year-old, your knowledge is worthless. <laughs> I haven't stolen it from anywhere. <laughs> it's amazing oh, because we all think three of us talking, pick the number eight, which is, you can go now on my website and have a look. With, I'm going to look. We launched recently an initiative, basically. Right, uh, so if you're listening now, go and have a look at Nadia's website. <laughs> is that the point? <laughs> where I encourage uh, staff and everybody around me, when you're tr- trying to explain something, do not explain it from top of your expertise. Explain yeah. it from the level of knowledge who, whoever mm. is in front of you. Absolutely. And it's usually a good benchmark. We are eight-year-olds. We never grow up. Because it's not our area. We never had experience. Therefore, we're all young in this about the embarkon and you're mentoring us to go through this. So Mm. you're technically taking us. Yeah, I love that question. You know, why would you want to be a mentor? And there's a really good answer for it. Yes. Yeah, you improve your own game by becoming a mentor. And of course, you help others. And hey, that's pretty good in and of itself. Just helping somebody else is, it feels great. You know, your oxytocin levels go up when you help someone else succeed, but there's something in it for you as well. And that is that you become better at what you do when you teach others how to do it. I absolutely loved the fact that you were teaching in a book saying no to how to Mm. say no. And there are so many different ways of saying no to. Yeah. My favorite one was the first one. And do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I'd love to. So look, first of all, no can be a one-word sentence. I mean, you can say no, but because I run a network, I don't like burning bridges. I, I, I like to keep relationships that I have, and I don't want to. I, I don't usually try to upset people unless it's somebody I just don't want to work with at all. And even then, I don't want to burn bridges. So the the first technique we talk about in there is a technique that I use often, and it's this: you know, if I said yes, I'm afraid I would let you down. And that's a very powerful technique. You're saying no, but you're saying no because you don't want to let that person down. And I don't like letting people down. I mean, even if it's not a close friend, I don't, I don't like letting people down. And so, and then I tell them why, you know, I don't have the bandwidth. This really isn't my area of expertise. I don't have the time, whatever the reason is, but I don't want to let you down. And if I did this, I would, I would let you down. And people I have found are very receptive to that way of saying no. Mm-hmm. What are your next trick? How to say no? Because there are quite a few of you sleeps there. <laughs> there. There are. So one of them is um, because I run a network, I really believe in referring people. So a really effective technique is to say, you know, um, this may not be something that I would be able to help you with, but I know somebody that I think would be a good fit. This is the kind of thing they love doing. They might have the time. Would you like me to make an introduction? to you and that person to see if maybe they would be able to help you with this. And that is a great technique because you've said no to them, but you've helped them. Hmm. And uh, I love that technique. And whenever possible, I try to use that technique. 
Another one is to basically give an alternative. For example, I think the example we have in there is um, if you're asked, if you're a caterer and, and somebody, uh, a nonprofit says, hey, would you, would you cater our 5K event, or this running event? And maybe you can't afford to cater the whole event. And rather than say, just say, no, I can't afford it. You, you say, uh, you know, I'd be, a, I'd be happy to contribute. And I can contribute by giving some gift certificates. You know, I wouldn't be able to, do, to, to cater the whole thing, but I could give you some gift certificates. Well, nonprofits, you know, they're like, yeah, that'd be great. You'll do that. Thanks. Fantastic. So there are ways of, of saying no by giving a, a smaller yes. Uh, that's a great technique. Now, that one technique, I don't know if, that, if it resonates with you guys. Uh, have you seen the, the TV show, the old TV show, Seinfeld? Yes. Okay, so you know it. Yeah. So one of the things we say is whatever you do, don't Seinfeld it. Now, one of the funny things about Seinfeld is that the characters would, would you know, they would just, uh, they'd be asked about something and they would go off on some crazy subterfuge as to, you know, why they didn't show up. Oh, yeah, I, I wasn't able to make it because um, I had to take my cat to get a whiskerectomy and on the way to the vet, I, you know, I got a, a, an automobile, my, my tire went flat and then the police came by and I didn't have a license and then they threw me in jail, you know, and they come up with all this crazy stuff. Don't do all that. Just be honest, be direct and don't Seinfeld it. Mm-hmm. That was great one, Don Seinfeld. I was instantly remembering all those episodes. We, when I came to Australia, first thing I was watching is Seinfeld, actually. One of the first things, I, I must say. Another thing, really li- want to zoom in on distraction or mission yeah. concept. This uh, resonated with me, always having this filter. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that's important and it actually can help you say no, is for you to understand the difference between something that is on mission for you or is a distraction. Because many times when somebody asks you to do something, what they want is on mission for them, but it's not on mission for you. It's not, it's not part of your value system. It's not where you're putting in your time. And so you have to recognize things that are on mission or are a distraction. And when somebody wants me to do something that is just not something I'm interested in or or feel that I can add value to, then I redirect them by saying this just is not something I do. I'll give you I'll give you a real life example. Many times I have people in, in BNI say, "Yeah, hey, I love BNI. It's great. I get tons of referrals." But one of the things that BNI needs to do is they need to teach the members how to sell. They need to teach people how to sell because people don't know how to sell. They get referrals and they can't close the deal. And so I, I say to them, listen, that's a great mission. Let me read you our mission. BNI's mission is to help people increase each other's business through a structured, positive, supportive referral marketing platform. There's no sales training in that. And so the truth is there are organizations out there who are experts at sales, Brian Tracy, Tommy Hopkins, uh, Jeffrey Gittimer. These guys are the world's leading experts on sales. And rather than be a bad copy of them, that's their mission. Let me refer you to someone I know in one of those organizations and they can help you. And that's a great example of, that's not my mission. And if I start going down every rabbit hole that people want me to go down, I'll never be the success I would like my business to be because I'm chasing all these rabbit holes that people think I should be going down. 
And this is where it's absolute, the nugget of it is also comes to when you create a business plan. I see so many business owners not focusing and understanding where they want to get, if they're going to take constant detour which they treat as an opportunity and it could be highly lucrative. Yes, it could be. But what it means is a compromise comes. It means you're not going to get to the destination you initially decided to go. Therefore, you have to weigh those two. How much will it be contributor to where you want to be rather than distractor? Right. Somebody else's opportunity is oftentimes a distraction for you. And so, you've, and, and that's one of the reasons why you got to get good with your values. You got to know what your values are. You have to have a clear cut mission for your business. You got to know what that is and you got to stay on mission and don't be going down all these sidetracks. Can you because please repeat this phrase very, again, very loud? Someone's opportunities. Someone's, uh, sometimes someone's opportunity is your distraction. Exactly. And that's happened a lot to me where people are coming to me, I have got this great opportunity and they show it to me and it's like, that is a great opportunity. I think you should pursue it, but it's, it's not on mission for me. It's not what I do. I have created the world's largest face-to-face networking organization because I am focused, laser focused on building a platform where people can do business through referrals. And I don't go, I just don't go down a ton of rabbit holes um, on different businesses. And this is a challenge for people when they're in partnership. Because one partner always would come up with, a, one would yeah, yeah. try to stay focused on where, where they want to be as an organization, and another one will come with those opportunities constantly. Great opportunity. So I keep this in my desk, because for exactly what you're saying, because sometimes people talk about this. And I say, look, you want to be successful in business? You got to do six things a thousand times. Not a thousand things six times. You got to do six things a thousand times, not a thousand things six times. The businesses that fail, and I keep this at my desk for this very reason, are the businesses that are constantly chasing bright, shiny objects. (laughs) There's another object. Yes, let's try that. And going after one bright, shiny object after another, rather than focusing on doing six things a thousand times. Now, what six things? Six things that are on mission for you, six things that people, your mentors tell you, this is what you need to do. The things that you know are tried and true, stop looking for some magic and focus on the fundamentals in your business and you'll do well. Another thing I really liked and resonated with me, and it's common, but it's probably a good old um, saying. Focus on a problem, you will become an expert in a problem. Yeah. yeah. So that, that concept comes from... Become an expert in solution. Yeah. So that concept comes from a friend of mine, Mark McCurgow. He wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Solutions Focus. And that's exactly what he says in the book. That if, you, if all you do is focus on the problem, you will be an expert at the problem. What you have to do is it's okay to talk about a problem, to recognize it, but then you have to be obsessive about the solution, not the problem. What happens is people get so caught up, they get caught up in this feedback loop with the problem and they just obsess over the problem instead of looking for solutions. So if you focus on solutions, you become an expert at finding solutions. And it's a great book. It's called Solutions Focus by Mark McCurgow. 
I have a little trick with the clients. Quite often, yeah. it's clients come to you with a problem, and that's what you are there for to help them. I throw it back at them, and I go, "Yeah, if you could do it. How would you do it? Yeah, better world. In a better world, how would you do right. it? How would you do it? The solution comes out of them because they know their business better. I'm just facilitating it with this very light question." Yeah, that's a great question, and here's a couple of follow-up questions. Because I used to do, I used to be a management consultant. Here's a couple of follow-up things. Because sometimes people will say, "Well, I don't know." So I'm asking you. So what you want to do? There's a concept in survey taking called semantic differential questioning, where you ask the same question in two or three different ways. And if you ask it in two or three different ways, especially if you ask a question or two in between. And so if you say something like,、um, you know, what, what do you think? And and if maybe if they say, well, I don't know, I can't, I can't imagine. Well, if you did know, what do you think it would be? <laughs> and that's just a sort of a mindset reset where you're asking the same question but you're asking it in a different way. I can't tell you how many times I've just changed up the form of the question and I've asked it two or three times in a row, and people will finally give me an answer because they just the easy thing is to say I don't know. The hard thing is to think it through. Well, it's very handy. See, I don't have to ask my questions twice. Strong accent helps.、Um, <laughs> I'm. We're coming very close to your favorite topic. Yeah. About balance. Yeah. Unless you want to take us no, somewhere else. Yeah, let's do. Let's do it's、balance. one of the most powerful concepts, and、uh, let's let's. I just will start it from telling that any startup. Why do people go into business? Any startup. Startups' dream is life-work balance. Yeah. Please tell us about what this balance is about. Yeah. Facing it all, and we living our full-time jobs to grab this life life-work balance. Yeah. So you know, I I built a company that's in seventy countries. We have eight thousand nine hundred groups, over two hundred fifty-four thousand members, and people always ask me. They'll often ask me, "What's What's the secret? I mean, how how do you have any kind of balance in your life? And so I really thought about it for this book, and I and I, I wrote what I believe the answer is. And and so you know, you've read the book, you guys know. But if you if if you're listening to this or watching this, here is the secret to balance. I'm going to give you the secret to balance. Ready? <laughs> build up, build up a bit more. Forget about balance. <laughs> You'll never ever have it. You're just not going to have balance. We look at life as sort of the scales of justice, Lady Justice, where there's these scales, and that our personal life is in balance with our business life, which is in balance with our spirituality, which is in balance with our health. And life is just not that way, especially if you're a business person. Life is more of a of a juggling act than it is a a balancing act. And so, I don't believe you can have balance. But there's good news. It's not all bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that you may not be able to have a life of balance, but you can have a life of harmony, and it's more than just semantics. Even the logo, the graphic for harmony, the yin and the yang, if you separated them, would be out of balance. So a life of harmony means that sometimes your life is just going to be crazy out of balance, but you have to make sure you understand what your values are. And really focus on trying to create a life of harmony. There's several techniques that I talk about in the book. Here's the first one. You want a life of harmony? Here's the first one. 
It's just a, a few simple words. Be here now. Mm-hmm. Wherever you are, be there. Don't be at home thinking about that project at work that's got to get done. Don't be at work thinking about the t- fact that you didn't spend time with the family last night, that you weren't focused, you know, you weren't fully present. Be fully present. Be here now. Now, nobody's perfect at this, but the better you get at it, the more likely you are to have a life of harmony. I mean, I'll give you one one example, and then if you have some other questions on this, I'm happy to do it. Here's one example on Be Here Now. When my son was 17, he's 25 now. When he was 17, him and I were sitting down, big screen television, and we're playing uh, Halo. And, you know, if you know Halo, it's kind of a fun game, but he was killing me. I mean, just killing me in Halo. And we're playing and we were leveling up. And that just takes a minute or two for the computer program to level up. And, and I turned to him and I said, hey, hey buddy, um, was I around enough for you as you were growing up? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he's like, what? I said, was I around enough? See, you're around all the time. See, you, you know, I travel every other week, right? Because I, I did. I traveled for almost his entire life. Every other week, I was traveling somewhere, a different state, a different country, and I'd be gone for anywhere from three days to five days, sometimes a week and a half. And I said, you, you remember I travel a lot, right? And he looked at me and said, yeah, but I don't know. It's like when you're here, you're totally here. I was like, good. He said, and then he said, can we get back to the game now? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get back to the game. The really now. important stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I wanted to hear if this concept, and this was you know eight years ago or so, this concept of be here now, did it work? For, and for him, I, I think it did because I really tried to be fully present as much as, as humanly possible when I was actually at home. And the memories that they develop of you, your, ch- your children, the memories that you de- your children develop of you are when you're there. Yeah. So if you're not actually there when you're there, their memories will be that you yeah. weren't really there. You're not present. And I yeah. think what you're getting there is that the, the fact that, you know, his memories, like I spend a lot of time doing my stuff. I travel around a lot as well, but you know, my son tells me my youngest son now, who's seven, you know, we spend a lot of time. We, when we're hanging out, we play a bit of basketball. He loves playing basketball. I started helping with his, I'm not coaching his team. I'm just helping assisting his, his coach. And he remembers all that stuff. And he'll talk about that stuff. He's not talking about the, you know, that the times when I'm not there. Yeah. So this, this is, that's just one technique. There are many different techniques uh, that one can use. I'll, I'll give you one other technique uh, that I, I talk about in creating harmony, not balance, but harmony. You have, contrary to popular belief, you cannot have it all. You cannot have it all. So you have to pick and choose the things that are important to you. And that goes back to values. What are your values? And then you have to learn how to let go and hold on for dear life. You let go of the things that are dissonant with you. You let go of the things that are not part of your values. You let go of the things that are a distraction and you hold on for dear life to the things that are important to you, to, your, to the things that you talk about as your values. Certainly my family is, is a high value item for me. And so I really strived hard to be fully present when I was there and to do things like when I wasn't traveling, I was home every night at 6, 6.30 for dinner. Every night. I virtually never missed dinner 
And that was one of the things that I wanted to hold on to. I wanted family dinner to be a family event, not, you know, mom and the kids. And so you got to learn to let go and you got to learn to hold on. That's brilliant. What is basically was a surprise is there is no such a thing as balance. The yeah. one we strive the most. We just have to compromise. Although it's not a compromise, it's probably an upgrade. Right. I don't think it's a compromise. I think it's a choice. It's all of this that I'm talking about is a matter of discernment. You are deciding what is the most important for you and the people in your room that you love and care for. And they may be friends, they may be family. And so the, what we're talking about is really a process of discernment. And if you can't have it all, make sure to have the things that are most important to you. Excellent. Okay, we've covered a lot. <laughs> I think anyone listening to this will have had, will, will now have a great idea what's in the book and hopefully they'll go out and grab it and really start to, you know, dive deeper into these topics. The, probably the one question that that i've got is and maybe we don't know the the answer to this question necessarily but what are the consequences of not following this advice well and your room by the way is your mind it's your brain your room becomes cluttered and your the door to your room is a revolving door where people just keep coming in and you have no control over uh, who comes in and there are so many people who are, they're miserable. They're absolutely miserable. And I don't say this to them, but what I'm thinking is if, if your life is absolutely miserable, it's like, it's because you've made those choices. These are all choices that you're making that have consequences that have led you to this part of your life that you just don't like. And it's not too late. You can take control. You can sit down and figure out your values. You can create a doorman. We haven't talked about the doorman principle, but the doorman is your subconscious and conscious mind thinking about who am I letting into my room? You create that doorman mentality and you control entry to your room. You learn how to deal with the people that are problems in your room. And then you learn how to live the life of your dreams. And so you can go from a miserable existence to an existence where you are in harmony by, by making good choices and doing it with a plan and not just swinging that door wide open where anybody can come in. I love it. Absolutely. I'll, I'll leave you with one last thought. You are the curator of your room. You design it. I can't design it. Our, nobody else can design it. We are the curator of our room. We're the one who creates the room that we desire. And if we don't know what we desire, it gets created for us. But if you know what you desire, then you have control of creating a room that you really truly love. And a very quick one I want to add. A lot of people will object to it because there are people in my life which are moms, dads, aunties, uncles. There is actually a very good technique how to deal with those people as well. So your objections are not really valid. About how about dealing with people that you, you well, don't there, want to? There are, 
people will object to this notion of uh, I can't just constantly kicking people out of my room. What if they are no. my immediate family? I, yeah, I, well, I can't get rid of my son with bad habit or I can't get rid of my mother. I have to call her. you giving a technique dealing with... How to, how to deal with that. That's right. So here's, here's a, in a nutshell, this is the concept. You may be in my room, but your baggage has to stay out. Now, I wouldn't say that to somebody in those terms. But that's the thing. You may be in my room, but the baggage has to stay out. Here's a real life example. And this is in the book. Rick, one of my co-authors, tells a story about his mother. And his mother was a very toxic person, very difficult. And she had a lot of health issues. And there are reasons why she was so toxic. But she would just start talking horribly about his brothers and sisters, her children. And she gossiped and she was toxic. But he wanted to be a good son. And he was one of nine kids. And he wanted to be a good son. And so he would call her every week. And every week he would hang up and he'd be so distraught because the phone call was horrible. And finally, he said to her, Mom, I love you. And I want to talk to you every week. And I'd like to have a a better relationship. But when you start getting toxic and you start talking about my brothers and sisters and and people I know, that doesn't work for me. And so from now on, when you start going down that direction, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, mom, I love you. It was good talking to you. I look forward to seeing you or talking to you again next week. Uh, Love you a lot. Bye. And I'm going to hang up. She was like, yeah, okay, fine. The very next week, she went right into it. And he said, I mean, it was just like five minutes in. And he said, mom, it was good talking to you. I really love you. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye. Click. She did it the next week. Took a little longer. (laughs) He said they went three weeks. And after three weeks, she never did it again. And he said, the best years of my life with my mother were those last two years where she and I talked every week. And it was a healthy conversation. And it was a beautiful, it ended up being a beautiful relationship with somebody who was basically very toxic. And it was because I drew a boundary in my room. And it basically was, and he never said these words to her, you are part of my room, but the baggage has to stay out. And he did it in a very loving and caring way. And yes, you can do that too for the people that are in your life or in your room. I know I've done it. It's about boundaries. My room, my rules. I love the concept. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Great. Thank Uh, you very much for book and the wisdom in a very comprised form. Thank you for chisel out all those pages you didn't need. (laughs) It was very easy to read. Uh, A lot of work. Uh, Less work for us. It was really good to get to nuggets straight away. It was express. Yeah, so that was excellent. And thanks for being our guest once again. I'd be happy to be on your show anytime. I really enjoy talking to you guys. If people are interested in any of my material, I have a blog, IvanMeisner.com. And uh, you can go there. I've been doing a blog for 12 years, uh, twice a week for 12 years on IvanMeisner.com. And the book is available at Amazon. It's available as a Kindle. It's available as a, a hard, hard copy uh, book. And it's also available as an Audible. So you can get it. And the nice thing about the Audible is all three of the co-authors read the book. Stuart does a chapter, I do a chapter, and Rick does a chapter. So all three of us, and and here's a a secret about the Audible. We actually added content because we had done the book already. So we threw in, you know, bonus material in in the Audible version. So if you're interested, go there. And of course, anyone that's interested in BNI, BNI.com. Thank you. Excellent. 
Thanks, Ivan. It was great to, uh, great to have you on again. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.